0: Well, this morning, I have the wonderful but tricky task, I think, of taking us through what is perhaps, and I think this can be said without too much exaggeration, one of the most famous sentences in the whole of literature. It certainly is the most well-known verse in the whole of the Bible. Of that, there is no doubt. John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this verse is so well known, I think, because this verse is so loved. And it is so loved because, as one commentator says, this verse seems to do everything all at once. It contains the heart of the gospel, it contains a captual assessment of why it is that we are Christians sitting here this morning. It contains the heartwarming truth of a salvation all wrapped up in this incredible love of God for us. As one preacher said, it makes me feel great and glad to know this God. What is not to love about this verse? However, within this warm affection for these verses lies a big problem. And that is that we can almost be too familiar with them. And that can cause real issues, for we can come at this verse and we either fall into the trap of maybe treating it at best with a a well-meaning apathy, or at worst with a tired contempt. And as such, if we're not really careful, if we don't read these verses well in context, we can all too readily miss what is really going on. And so as we come to this well-known part of the Bible in this manner this morning, And as beautiful as many of us find these verses, I hope, in fact, that we will see very quickly that John 3, 16 to 21 is profoundly more beautiful than we first thought. And that's a wonderful thing. Conversely, however, as we come to these verses in this manner, and this is especially true as we come to John 3, 16, we also find, possibly against our better sentiment that this passage centered around this single well-known verse is profoundly more uncomfortable than we perhaps first thought. And so, if we do our job well today with the help of the Holy Spirit, I hope, having looked at this verse, that we go away from here feeling more in love with Jesus than we came into this building. But I think for some of us, maybe, we'll be leaving here more unsettled by him than we perhaps like to be. And so with all that in mind, why don't we read the passage together and then we'll get straight into it. John three sixteen to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Well, you'll see on your service sheets, which you were given as you came in through the door this morning, an outline of where we're heading to today. And first off, we're going to tackle very briefly the small topic of God's love. And the first thing we see across the whole of this passage is that God's love is totally undeserved. I remember as if it were yesterday, the moment that I saw Jen for the first time. I espied her across a crowded orchestra pit at Highfields Church in Cardiff. She's going to be dying at this moment. Forgive me, Jen, but I blame the scriptures. And when my eyes alighted on her, I thought, my goodness, that's a very attractive, talented girl. I should ask her out for a coffee. Then I heard her play. Elgar's cello concerto, off by heart in a conservatoire recital, and I thought, my goodness, stuffed coffee, I really need to marry her. (laughs) And so I pursued her, and praise the Lord against, I'm sure, her better judgment, she gave in to my incessant love-struck idiocy, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, I am sure that for most of us here, we all have a sense of what falling in love, or at least what being attracted to someone or something feels like. And I'm really not just talking about married love. Because love can manifest itself in all different kinds of ways, can't it? Whether it be that friendship love of a very close friend, those kindred spirit type of friends, those friends that stand the test of time, the friendship where you can pick up where you left off after ages of being apart. Or on another another level, maybe just like being around your mates in an evening or with your family. On another level, you may have experienced the love of a gift. Or a home or a place, a place that tugs at your heartstrings, brings up memories of days long past, a place you yearn to return to. Now, we all know what that feels like. And that is because, as human beings, we are attracted to people. We're attracted to other things. It's in our makeup. It's in our DNA. That's how we function. And as wonderful and as great as those feelings are about a person or a place... As rewarding and fulfilling as that is, there is one fundamental truth that lies of the heart of all those kind of relationships. And that is that they are all based on the fact that there is something about that person which we find attractive. Now, I realize that's possibly the most obvious sentence I've ever spoken, but it's true, isn't it? I love how Jen looks, her talent, her character... There is something good or attractive about her that drew me in. I love the way my closest friend gets me or who understands exactly how I feel at any given moment. I love how they inspire me. In short, with the people we love, there is something sparky and attractive and lovable about them. In short, when I say I love Jen, I'm saying in reality that there is something about Jen that is lovable. Well, it is in that light... That this most well-known of verses in Scripture stands out starkly, because when we read John 3:16, it can make us feel that kind of fuzzy, warm feeling in the sense that God is falling in love with us all over again, like, like we fall in love with our best friends or our spouses, in the sense that there must be something that is inherently lovable about me. But the truth is staggeringly different. And the truth is staggeringly more uncomfortable than I think we would like. Because the stark reality is in this passage, and in the whole of the Bible, a reality that has been established in this book of John from chapter 1, is that we as humans, we the world, are truly repugnant. For God so loved the world. But what does the world look like? Well, look at the verdict that Jesus gives in regards to us, the world. It's found in verses 19 and 20. For this is the judgment, this is my verdict, in other words, says Jesus over humankind. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see what's going on here? God so loved the world, but the world so loved the darkness. And here lies the desperate reality of this passage. It is the reality that we as the world are inherently unattractive and unlovable, mired in darkness. The assessment, the verdict of God's judgment over mankind is entirely negative. There is no redeemable feature about us at all. That's what the word world means in John. When John mentions the world, he uses it almost entirely negatively. The world in John's language isn't the universe in that sense. Rather, it is talking of people whose works are fundamentally evil, people who hide in darkness. However, it's in this refrain of darkness and light, isn't it, that we hear the the strains of John 1 floating over this passage, don't we? It's only when we have John 1 in our minds do we really begin to understand what's going here. Turn back to John 1, verse 9 for a moment. Robin read John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus Christ coming into the world. John 1, 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Who is the light in John one? It is Jesus Christ Himself, the Word with the Father. The Son of God here in John three sixteen who was sent. But what does the world do with this light? Well, it rejects him. What does the world love instead? The opposite, it loves the darkness. And so the reality is in this passage is that the depths of evilness is not not only that we are wretched and unlovable, but by loving the darkness and hating the light, we are all actively haters of Jesus. And this is where John really lowers the boom, because you see, the truth is, in our natural state, not a single one of us stands in a neutral position in regards to how we view God. In our attitude to God, at least, we're all bad. We all hate him. In other words, we're not standing in the middle ground or on the fence, as it were, making the decision whether to move over to love him or to move over to hate him like he's vying for our vote. I'm already hating him by loving the darkness. That's my natural position. That's where I'm born. That's where I work and thrive and exist. In fact, it is Even worse than that, because as a human, John 3 tells us, in my heart of hearts, hating Jesus and loving the darkness is where I want to be. Verse 19 and 20, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. As a fallen humanity, we are like rats in a filthy basement when the light is switched on. We would much rather cling to the dark than move into the light. And John tells us that is because we do not like what the light shows up. We all know what that feels like, don't we? As a kid, I remember being terrified, truly terrified of dad finding out that I had done something wrong. And so I would cower in fear, literally in the dark. I would literally turn out the light and hide under the bed, trying to hide myself from his light, as it were. Not because my dad was a horrible man, but because I didn't want him to see me as I was. As a dirty rat bag, as someone who had done something wrong, the thought of being found out was torturous. As adults, we still know what that feels like. Whether we're Christians or not here this morning, don't we? We all know the feeling of having to truly apologize to someone and to admit that we've done something wrong. Even when we pluck up the courage to do so, we squirm and try and make excuses and we fight our way out of it. It's excruciating. And it is so because we do not like the fact that that person will see me in the light. As someone who has been rude, or a gossip, or fundamentally lazy, we don't like it. As a fallen humanity, we are so afraid that Jesus would expose our love for wicked things that we would rather have nothing to do with him. We'd rather hate him. As a fallen humanity, we would much rather cling to the dark and remain hidden. This, then, is God's verdict over humanity. We are dirty, wretched people who love the darkness and who hate Jesus. And what is God's response to us in this state? God so loved. That's his response. I question that any of us here in this room has truly loved people who treat us the way that we treat God. Not one of us has. As Don Carson says, there really is no illustration, there is no historical person, there is no incredible act that we can fall on that best explains or even begins to help illuminate just what God's love is really like. It is simply astonishing that God loves us. It is simply astonishing that God loves us. And it is only when we start off this passage with this understanding of God's love and the sheer audacity of it, in the light of this understanding of ourselves and our natural wretched state, that the rest of John 3.16 becomes all the more alluring. Because it is not enough that God merely loved us in our wretchedness and hatred, as if he looked on from heaven at a great distance and yearned after us privately and in secret, as extraordinary as that would have been, Oh, no. This astonishing love of God is shown in an even greater light when we see it manifested in the giving up of his only son, who in turn gave up his very life. You see, it is only when we truly sit in the grotesque reality of our human nature can we really grasp how magnificent it is that God's love is entirely sacrificial. For God so loved this despicable and attractive evil world which resolutely and actively enjoyed hating him that he gave his only son. Now, isn't that astonishing? I have the deep, deep privilege of having been gift of a son. You will have heard that gift this morning. I'm screaming from the front row. A, a, A gift I do not take lightly. I cannot, I simply cannot get my head around the idea that I would give Toby up in any respect for someone else. Not even for my closest friends and family, let alone giving him up to death. Let alone for people who actively hate me and who actively hate him. Only when I begin to think in those terms do I begin to dip a toenail into the ocean of what God the Father had to go through in his love for us by the giving up of his son, his only son, for the sake of redeeming the unredeemable. And this is where the context of John 3.16 is so helpful for us. Because we know, don't we, that the giving up of this son doesn't just mean the giving up of Jesus into humanity in the Incarnation. In other words, God doesn't just present Jesus so that he can empathize with us as much as Jesus does do that. But this love ultimately involves the giving up of this son to death on a cross. And we know that because of what Robert mentioned last week from the immediately preceding verses to our passage today. John three fourteen and 15, just read those with me again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, the context to this serpent story in Numbers is that the people of God were grumbling against God and against Moses, and they're longing to go back to Egypt. And so God sent poisonous snakes into the camp as judgment on them. And so, as directed by God, Moses erects the bronze snake onto a pole so that they could look on it, trust in God, and be healed from the bites of the snakes. So that they could be saved, in other words, from God's own judgment. And so, likewise, Jesus here is lifted up in the same way on the cross to save mankind from this judgment hanging over us in verse 19. And this raises another deeply unsettling point in this passage. And that is that this judgment, this verdict of God over humanity, us loving the darkness and hating Jesus, is a big, big problem. You see, the issue isn't that we hate Jesus in our natural state, and that's a shame, because Jesus is actually quite a nice guy when you get to know him. The problem is that we hate Jesus in our natural state, and that brings a death sentence over us. Remember who it is we're dealing with here. The God of eternity. The creator God of the universe. To reject him, the Bible says, is a massive, massive deal. I'm not rejecting just anybody. I'm not rejecting a door-to-door salesman. Neither am I rejecting a very holy man who is morally pure, as many people would see Jesus. I'm rejecting the God of eternity. And it makes sense that that's a big problem. And the consequences of this problem are clear in this passage, aren't they? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. It seems in this passage, then, that in our default position of loving the darkness, we die. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It seems in this passage then that in our default position of loving the darkness, we are under eternal condemnation. Indeed, jump to the very end of this whole section, which we'll get to next week. John three thirty six. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It seems in this passage, then, that in our default position of loving the darkness and hating Jesus, we are under God's wrath. And it is for those reasons why the Son of Man must be lifted up. It is for those reasons that the Son of God had to be given over to the cross. It is those reasons that the God of eternity needed to step into time in the form of God's only Son as a human, Jesus Christ, walking among and dwelling with and identifying with us filthy rats of his creation because I needed someone to die in my place. I needed someone who is love personified, perfection personified, God personified, to take on this judgment over humanity on himself, to take on the wrath of a perfect holy God on himself in order that I may be free from that condemnation in death and therefore free from longing for the darkness and brought into the loving light of Jesus. We couldn't do that for ourselves. Why? Because we hate the light. We can't get anywhere near God to work out the solution for ourselves. We hate him. And so the light himself had to work out the solution for us and on our behalf. You see, on the cross, everything that I am judged as being in this passage, all my love for the darkness, my hatred of God, my sin, my rebellion, it is placed on the perfect Jesus. As he dies in the way that I should have been dying, the death that I was building up for myself in my fallen natural state, a lonely death, a death of condemnation, a death under God's holy wrath. But instead, God loved the world so much that he gave up his only son to die that very death under that very condemnation in utter loneliness under his own father's wrath for all who will believe in his name. God so loved the world that he gave up to death his only son And that brings us to the last element of God's love this morning, because it is true that God, through the death of this Son, Jesus Christ, actively and substantially wins for us, therefore, a genuine, real, eternal salvation. God's love is totally undeserved, it is entirely sacrificial, and it truly saves In short, in terms of the predicament we find ourselves in, God's love actually works. Read with me verses 16 and 17 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is what the whole of John is pointing towards. Jesus is our saviour. You see, Jesus' death is not just a dramatic gesture of God's love. Neither is it merely an example as to how people should love each other, as much as we as Christians do follow that example. Jesus dies because it's the only way saving us was going to work. You see, it, it wasn't enough that God merely loves us. We needed God's love to actually move us from death to life. We needed saving. That's why we needed Jesus to die for us because he is the saviour king. No one else could have done that. We didn't need someone to be kind to us and sit with us in darkness. We needed someone who was actually powerful enough to physically move us from death to life, from condemnation to freedom, from, from darkness to light. We needed rescuing. Jesus' death wasn't just a dramatic gesture. It truly saves, in that it has a material impact on my life. That is why Jesus' primary role isn't to condemn. That's interesting, isn't it? Considering what we've just been looking at, Jesus does condemn. Well, don't forget our natural state. We are already under condemnation. We're already lost. That's a certainty, Jesus doesn't come into a neutral world to condemn some and save others. He comes into a lost, already condemned world, and he wants to save it. Jesus' primary role is to be saviour. For God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Not so that the world might be merely enamoured by him, Not so that the world might be merely impressed by him. Not so that the world would even learn to love like him. It was so that the world might be saved through him. And what does being saved look like? Well, it is the saving from eternal death to eternal life. And a life of transformation. Where, verse 21, the works that were evil and done in the dark, in verse 19, are now carried out in God himself. All thanks to the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Again, this is what the whole of John is pointing towards. John 1.29, as we heard this morning, as John the Baptist points into the face of Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 10.10, 10, I, says Jesus, have come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. John 20, 31, And all these things, therefore, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The love of God, wrapped up in the death of Jesus, his Son, the Savior, truly saves us to real life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life in God. Given our state before God, it is simply astonishing that God loves us. Given our state before God, it is simply astonishing how God loves us. Given our state before God, it is simply astonishing what God's love actually achieves for us. However, the word believing here brings us on to our last point, and here's the rub. If it is true that we are inherently unlovable and lovers of the darkness and haters of Jesus, and it is. And if it is true that this is a big problem for us, which leads us to being condemned and facing certain death, and we are. And if it is true that Jesus' sacrificial death is the only way by which the fallen world can be genuinely, truly saved from this reality, and it is, then it is also true that we have a serious, serious decision to make. In other words, what is our response to this love of God? Read with me the first three verses again for the last time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's step out of the passage again for a moment. Remember what this passage immediately follows. It follows this extraordinary conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus and the question that headlines this entire chapter is asked by Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 4. How can a man be born when he is, he is old, Nicodemus asks Jesus. In short, in response to what Jesus has been talking about in verse 3, how can someone be born again, as you say, Jesus, in order that they can see the kingdom of heaven? Well, John three sixteen is the answer. That person needs to believe in the name of this only Son of God. In Jesus. You see, it is not enough that you hear about this love of God this morning. It is not even enough that you are sent to it being true. In order to be born again, in order to be able to see the kingdom of heaven, in order to be able to move from darkness into life, from death to life, you have to truly believe and put your trust in the fact that God so loved this world that He gave His only Son to die the death that you really should have died. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, You need to believe in me right in front of you. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to you this morning. There is a decision for Nicodemus to make in this chapter, and there is a decision for those of you who do not love Jesus to make this morning. I wonder how some of you are feeling at this moment. Some of you may be sitting here this morning and perhaps you're not a Christian and you're thinking, well, hold on, Sam. This really is a bit extreme. I don't hate Jesus, I never have. I'm just not that fussed by him. Well, the judgment that God presents over humanity is that there is no neutral ground in respect to how we view God. There's no Switzerland to inhabit in regards to God. Verse 18 has just said that. If you are ambivalent to Jesus, or even if you don't really mind, but you haven't yet believed, then you're already in the condemnation camp. That is your natural state. But just look at what is offered to you. An open gift of eternal life, wrapped up in the physical, real-life person of Jesus, God's only Son, Thanks in no part to yourself, given to you to receive this very morning purely out of God's love. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Trust him that he's got this sorted. For those of you who have maybe been sitting in church for years, for decades even, and you've never truly believed in Jesus... You've maybe fought and fought for years against coming into the light and loving him. Too in love with the darkness to really do anything about it, but perhaps too ashamed as to what he's going to show up. Wonderfully, he already knows what that is. I challenge you today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Come to him while he can be found. Come to him to receive sure and certain hope of eternal life. In this regard, for the whole of humanity, this passage is deeply unsettling. It's not nice to be told that we're wretched or hopeless or dirty or entirely unlovable. And for some of us here, it's not nice to be told that we have to entirely depend on someone else to help us. But it is a good thing to hear if it shows up our true state and and reveals to us our only solution. It may be uncomfortable, but it is exactly what we need to hear. I challenge you, do not stand on your pride this morning. Believe in the name of the one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And in that light, I I hope for those of us who are Christians here this morning that the truth of this passage is profoundly more beautiful than you perhaps first thought. Because I am certain, for some of us here this morning, that there may be times in your life, very real times in your life, when you genuinely think that there is no one who loves you, where you feel that you would forever be alone, where you feel that the people you hold dear will one day disappear. Well, let this truth settle in your heart that there is at least one person who loved you so much that he found it fit to die for you. Not because you were lovable, but because you weren't. Meaning that this person's love is not at all dependent on how well you're doing or on how good you look, but it is all dependent on him and his unchangeable character. That gives us incredible assurance as Christians because this saving work is all wrapped up in his certain solid character and love and not my fickle one. And so is this not a wonderful, truly beautiful reminder of how you are viewed by God? God so loved you. In your ugliness and your unattractiveness, in your open disobedience and your secret sins, in your utter disdain for him and your desire for darkness, in your wretchedness and recrimination, God so loved you. In your extreme anxieties and your public shame, in your constant pains and your weakening mortality, in your silent horrors and your private nightmares, in your all-consuming physical, mental, spiritual, emotional battles that drain you of life, God so loved you. God so loved you that he gave up his only son to take all those things on himself so that he could hang there with them on a cross in order that you who believe in him will not die like he did, but will live with him sin, suffering, and pain-free with Jesus for an eternity. And we can know that this is true because of the cross by far and away the greatest demonstration that God really, really loves you in Jesus. Because in Jesus, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you so very much for your incredible love for us and this fallen world. Father God, it is truly astonishing that you love us. Heavenly Father, I pray very much that for those of us who love you this morning, that this passage would warm our hearts and give us real assurance that this is how you view us, that we would be truly grateful because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, Heavenly Father, may we be smitten again by Jesus and by the cross and and just how wonderful it is that it ever happened at all. Father God, for those of us here who maybe haven't asked Jesus yet to be our friend and our saviour, Lord God, I pray that today would be the day where we do that, where we see Jesus for who he really is, as the sent one from the God who loves and who died for us to have eternal life. We pray all these things with thanksgiving and praise. Amen.